All right. Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden this week. Uh, first, next week, Monday, December 5th, uh, we will meet, but we will not meet in here. Uh, that's because uh, at Emmanuel, we have a program called The Giving Tree uh, that benefits uh, local families, and they are going to be utilizing this space. So we will be meeting in the Worship Center. Uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with the Emmanuel campus, that's just the main building over there. You can still park on the side and go in that main entrance there. Uh, and you won't be able to uh, not see the worship center when you go in there. I'll also try to have kind of people on lookout uh, here and around. But next week, we will meet, just not in here. We will be in the worship center. Uh, and second is, uh, you may have saw it when you came in and got uh, your handout. Uh, Regina in our midst is celebrating her 85th birthday. Uh, and her friend decided to unload her Halloween candy and celebrate uh, uh, that birthday. Uh, so I don't want my voice recorded on YouTube and podcast for posterity singing. So on the count of three, we're just going to say, Happy birthday, Regina. All right. So one, two, three. Happy birthday, Regina. Uh, blessed 85th birthday to you and glad you are here uh, this evening. So those are the announcements. Again, uh, if you know someone that comes uh, to Echoes of Eden but isn't here tonight, uh, give them a heads up on where we'll be at next week. I'll, again, I'll try to have some signs and post it, and I'll try to send out an email on Friday that reminds everybody of that. All right, so uh, let's get started now with the blessing before the study of Torah, and then we will dive into this week's parashat. Okay, let's pray. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ho'elam. Asher kidisharu bo misfetav vesivanu le'esok bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So this week is the seventh portion of Sefer Bereshit, uh, the book of Genesis, and it is entitled Vayetzi. Uh, Vayetzi, which uh, means uh, in Hebrew, he went out, uh, referring, of course, to uh, Jacob going out. Uh, covers Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, and goes through chapter 32, verse 3. Uh, as I said, it is the seventh portion uh, of uh, the book of Genesis, and we're kind of into the the heart of the time with Jacob, Yaakov, uh, and we get to uh, spend a little bit more time with him tonight, for sure, uh, as we're going to look at a couple of lessons we can learn from him, uh, and uh, kind of setting the scene, uh, just kind of what's this week's portion all about, what's Vayetzi include, uh, has the, the patriarch Jacob leaving uh, his hometown of Beersheba, which is today in uh, modern Israel. It's in the, the southern part of Israel, kind of in the, the desert there. He leaves that, his homeland, and he travels towards Haran, right? And Haran is kind of where Abraham, his grandfather, had come from. Uh, and Jacob uh, is partially doing this to uh, run from his brother Esau, but also he's doing it uh, to find a family. And so on the way, 
he encounters what uh, is called the place. Uh, we'll talk about that more in depth uh, later on, but ha Mahom in Hebrew, the place. He encounters the place, uh, which will eventually become the Temple Mount. Uh, but he encounters it all the way here. And so that's something to be looking toward in Genesis. It's foreshadowing things that are to come. So you had Abraham going to the region of Moriah. That's the Temple Mount area uh, to offer Isaac. Then you have Jacob hitting that same area. So it's already kind of becoming part of our radar, if you will, as we're reading through. Uh, that this is going to be some very special, sacred, holy ground, uh, a spiritual portal. And while he is there at Hamachom, at the place, he has a dream, the very famous dream of Jacob, where there is a ladder that essentially connects heaven and earth. Uh, a ladder in Hebrew is uh, sulam. Uh, so he sees this sulam, he sees this ladder that's connecting uh, the, the world above with the world below. The, these two realities find this kind of way of connecting, and there he sees angels ascending and descending, and it's uh, something to pay attention to that they first are ascending and then they are descending. And then God appears and promises that the land upon which Jacob lies will be given to his descendants. And then in the morning, uh, Jacob raises the stone on which he had laid his head, uh, and he makes it an altar, a monument, pledging that it will be made Beit El, the house of God, or Bethel in English. Bethel is Beit El in Hebrew, means house of God. So again, another indication that this ground, even at this early stage, is being consecrated, it's being set apart, it's being made holy for God's purposes. And if we're thinking Hebraically, it's really not that that ground is holy because Abraham went to offer Isaac there. It's not holy because this is where Jacob has his dream about the ladder and sees the angels ascending and descending. Rather, the ground in that space is already intrinsically holy, and that's why it's drawing these individuals there for these occurrences. And so Jacob arises, and uh, we'll also make note that uh, he takes the stone, singular, that he laid his head on, and makes it a monument and says, this will be Bethel. This will be where the house of God will stand. Um, but if you paid attention earlier, a few verses before that, he didn't lay his head on a stone. He laid his head on stones, plural. So why does it go from singular, I mean, from plural to singular. So uh, keep that in, your, in the back of your mind as we'll hit that later. Uh, when he gets to Haran, Jacob stays with and he works for good old Uncle Laban, okay, tending Laban's sheep. And Laban agrees to, uh, to give Jacob his younger daughter Rachel in marriage uh, because, as the text says, Jacob loves Rachel. Uh, in return, he is to work for seven years for Laban. But on the wedding night, Laban uh, does a switcheroo and gives him his elder daughter, Leah, instead. Uh, a deception Jacob only discovers in the morning. 
Jacob does go on to marry Rachel as well a week later after agreeing to work for another seven years for Laban. Leah gives birth to six sons. Uh, Their names are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. Six sons of Jacob, or as Jacob gets renamed Israel, six sons of Israel. These are the first six tribes, if you will, of Israel, and they are born to Leah. And if you take note, one of them is Judah, which is where the Messiah comes from. Uh, And she also gives birth to a daughter, Dina or Dinah, and Rachel remains barren. Like, where have we heard this before, right? This is now the third generation where there is a, a barren matriarch. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaid Bilhah as, a, as an individual to bear children in her stead. And two more sons, Dan and Naphtali, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaid Zilpah, and she gives birth to Gad and Asher. Finally, Rachel's prayers are answered, and she gives birth to Joseph, right? And so here, Joseph now enters into the scene. Uh, He won't be the focus quite yet, but he enters the scene here, and he will soon be the focus of the book of Genesis. Jacob, after he's been in Haran for 14 years, wishes to return home, but Laban persuades him to remain, now offering sheep uh, in exchange for his labor. Jacob prospers despite Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. And uh, there we can kind of learn of Jacob's knowledge of genetic engineering, so to speak. And after six years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, uh, in secret, uh, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with his family and property for which he had labored. Laban begins to pursue Jacob, but then is warned in a dream by God to back off. Laban and Jacob then make a pact. Uh, They attest it by a pile of stones, and then Jacob proceeds back to the Holy Land, back to the Promised Land, back to the land of Canaan, back to the land promised to Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and father, uh, and he is met there by angels. So that's kind of the portion in a nutshell. Uh, and then as we kind of kick started, I want to bring into play where we see Jesus in this, or better yet, where Jesus quotes and brings this passage into play in his ministry and in his conversation uh, with one of his disciples. So I want us to look at this verse from the portion of Ayetze. It's Genesis 28, verse 12. The he there is, of course, uh, Jacob. So let's read this together. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, notice, hopefully you can see on the slide there that I have it, that last word, kind of bold italics, kind of standing out for you, because we're going to focus in on that because Jesus 
focuses in on that. This is one of those cases where there's lots of debate on how to interpret this particular verse uh, within the rabbinic literature. And if you aren't familiar with the rabbinic literature, you would never know that Jesus actually enters into the debate. And Jesus gives us his take or which side he falls on in this interpretation kind of uh, debate. Uh, and then not only does Jesus give us his understanding of which side, but he kind of ups the ante a little bit by applying it directly to himself. So the Hebrew there of Genesis 28 verse 12 lends itself to a peculiar interpretation. The verse says, he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on earth and its top reaching to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. But in Hebrew, the pronoun it, that word, that one I had italicized at the end, the Hebrew pronoun it is identical to the Hebrew pronoun for him. Uh, and it, that pronoun is known as you pronounce it, who. All right. So how many are you familiar with the Abbott and Costello skit about uh, who's on first? Yeah. All right. There's a ver there's a Hebrew version of this, because in Hebrew, in Hebrew, he is she. How do you say she in Hebrew? You say it like this. He he is she and who is him. All right. So believe it or not, when I taught Hebrew, I, I had a whole skit because there's a whole bunch more of them with that. But who is he and and who is who is him, or who is it, you know, okay? Uh, so, who, the Hebrew word who, can mean him or it. 99% of the time, context is going to dictate that and, and make it clear, and it's, it's not going to be some great mystery. But every once in a while, both really fit, and context really kind of supports both. And so, what do you do then? Now, you're becoming good Hebraic thinkers, so you know the answer is really kind of both, that one doesn't exclude the other, but you, instead you kind of find what both, the ramifications of both are. You kind of bring about a synthesis, which Jesus is ultimately going to, going to work. But if we take what no English translation takes, uh, instead most English translations have it like that, like what we read, descending on it, but you can get an A-plus in Hebrew by translating it like this. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on him. On him. Hmm. Okay? And just so you know, the ambiguity of it or him found its way into being codified into rabbinic legend. I just want to give you one example of many, all right? Uh, this is from the Midrash Rabbah. Rabbi Kaya, the elder, and Rabbi Yanai disagreed. One taught that the angels in Jacob's vision were ascending and descending on the ladder. That's the it. What were they ascending and descending on? On it, the ladder. Uh, but the other taught that they were ascending and descending on him, Jacob. Right. So that was kind of a serious debate. Which was it? Right. Because different ramifications can be heard from either one. 
So now I want to turn to the life of Jesus, and I want to turn to the Gospels to see where Portion Vayetze and Jacob's Ladder and this, uh, this verse, chapter 28, verse 12, comes into play in the teaching of Jesus, and we can see where Jesus fits in this debate or which side he comes down on. Jesus is having a conversation with an individual, Nathaniel. And there he alludes to this alternative reading of Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. Uh, this is what Jesus said to Nathanael in John chapter 1, verse 51. So let's read this together. Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in your Echoes of Eden handbook, you know, they have the reading schedule and it had the Hebraic toolbox. One of those essential tools to thinking and reading and interpreting the Bible from that authentic first century Galilean perspective is to know how the Bible quotes the Bible. Now, we just read that verse from Genesis 28 in Portion Vayetse. And remember, they don't have chapters and verses at this time. So what do you see in Jesus' teaching that immediately tells us he's taking us back to that story? What do you see in there? Ascending and descending, right? The heavens open, angels ascending and descending. That's, how, that's like straight out of Genesis 28, is it not? So Jesus is bringing that into play to talk about himself to Nathaniel. Okay? What is the meaning of this enigmatic statement of Jesus? As far as we know from the gospel record on a Peshat, on a very literal level, Nathaniel never was swept up into some rapturous vision on which he saw angels ascending and descending upon a ladder or even upon Jesus. So in what sense do angels ascend and descend upon Jesus. Now notice what Jesus did there. The sulam, the ladder. What was the role of the sulam in Genesis? I, I mentioned it, right? What was it? You got above and you got a below. What brought these, what was, what was the ladder's role? It was the connector. It was the way things got from below to above, but it's also the way things from above came below, right? It was an escalator going up and down between the two worlds, the, the physical world and the spiritual world, the, the earthly world and the heavenly world, right? Um, the, this world and the world to come, if you will. Right? It was connected by the latter. By Jesus understanding that pronoun as referring to a person, to a, a, a male individual, he's now saying, it's not Jacob, it's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the portal. The Son of Man is the connector of heaven and earth. And he tells Nathaniel, you will see angels ascend and descend on me. So how did Nathaniel see that? Well, in one sense, angels literally do descend and ascend upon Jesus. Uh, the Hebrew preposition upon, which is all, can also be understood as because of or with regard to. And uh, that would mean John 151, 
reads this way. You will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending because of the Son of Man. Angels descend quite a bit. If you pay attention to the Gospels, they're all over the place ascending and descending with regard to the Son of Man. Let's think about some of them. Angels descend to foretell Jesus' birth to Zechariah and to Mary and to Joseph, to announce his birth to shepherds, to warn Joseph about Herod, to feed Jesus after the temptation in the wilderness, to open the tomb and announce the resurrection, to witness the ascension. All of those incidents in the New Testament all describe angels descending. In the future, Matthew 25, 31, angels will again descend when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him. In the Psalms, there's a a prophecy regarding the Messiah. It's a prophecy that even the enemy quotes to Jesus. Psalm 91, verse 11, He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Jesus wielded authority over more than, as Matthew says in Matthew 26, verse 53, over 12 legions of angels. Angels are the messengers of God. They are the agents of God on earth. And as Jesus wielded his authority and performed miracles and wonders, the unseen world of God's angels, his messengers, his hosts, carried out his bidding. And so Nathaniel very much saw all of that. Every time he was able to witness Jesus doing a miracle, a healing, every time he was able to encounter uh, Jesus' teaching uh, in that powerful way, in that transformative way, he was experiencing, he was seeing angels ascend and descend. He was participating in that connector between above and below. In the sense of seeing God's power manifest because of Jesus, Nathaniel and all the disciples witnessed angels of God ascending and descending on Jesus. So they saw signs and wonders, miracles, every indication that heaven and earth had become connected through Jesus of Nazareth. It was the point of conduct, our contact. It was the conduit right there, Jesus. The power and authority of heaven, which in apocalyptic literature is always betokened by angels, this is now in Jesus' control. That is to say, they were ascending and descending upon him and at his command. And so when Jesus has this conversation in John 1, he's really saying, I am the latter. I am the sulam. Right? And that is actually one of the titles for Messiah, Sulam, Hasulam, um, the latter, the one that connects heaven to earth. So that's just an example of where our portion for this week finds its way into the teaching of Jesus and how, once again, in the life of Jesus, we actually see the word being made flesh, literally being made flesh. All right. So now I want to talk about the context of Jacob's dream. And the reason I want to do this is Jacob's dream is probably uh, one of, it's, you know, it probably maybe isn't in the top five 
but I would say it makes its way into the top 10 of stories people at least have heard of, have seen in art, have seen portrayed somehow, some way, has made its way into influencing uh, even secular literature or movies or art and so forth. Uh, the whole idea of Jacob having a dream of the ladder. And so I want to take something that may be somewhat familiar and I want to set it in its context because I'm hoping that when we do this exercise, we will find its practical application for us as believers today. Like, what's it saying about us? And this is, again, going back all the way to that very first class in Echoes of Eden, the first portion, Bereshit, where we talked about looking at the Torah as archetypal. Yes, it's history. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's inspired by God. Yes, these are real people and all of that. But it's also archetypal. And therefore, Jacob is more than just a dude named Jacob thousands of years ago. Though he was that, he's more than that. He represents an archetype that is found in the human psyche that's found in each and every one of us. And that means when we come to this portion this week and we read it, one of the things we're trying to do, one of the, uh, the, the kavana, the, the, the intentions we have, is to activate Jacob within us. That aspect of Jacob that's found in each of us to, to bring it out uh, and to accomplish for us what Jacob accomplished back then. And so I want to set the context, and in the process, hopefully some nuggets of application, some insight into how to tap into your Jacob uh, can come to light, okay? So again, this Torah portion, Vayetze, uh, begins with that very famous dream of Jacob. Uh, he sees a ladder reaching from earth to heaven with angels ascending and descending, and whereas most other biblical dreams, if you look at all the dreams in the Bible, most other biblical dreams appear related to specific events or related to specific messages or related to specific warnings. Allah, you think in the Gospels, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, has a dream warning him that Herod is out to, to snuff out all the baby boys and he needs to get himself to Egypt. Or when he's in Egypt, he has a dream and he's told hey, it's, it's safe to return back to the land, right? It's usually, biblical dreams are usually quite specific. Jacob's dream, though, has an eternal quality. It has a universal aspect that's kind of in a category all its own. And for that reason, it is very archetypal. Artists throughout the ages have tried to capture this mystical dream on canvas. Writers have used the imagery and inspiration in countless ways. The story of Jacob's dream takes relatively few verses. When you think about how big a concept it is, how important it is, how much it's well known, in the end, it doesn't take that much space in the Bible. And yet, even though it only takes a few words to talk about it, millions of words have been spoken and written about it. So the opening verse of the account of the dream begins 
like this. Let's read it together, Genesis 28.10. And Jacob went out from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran. The Beit Halevi comments that usually a person travels either in order to leave a situation, to, to leave a previous situation, or they travel in order to begin a new one. In this verse, both the point of departure and the final destination are mentioned to inform us that Jacob really has two intentions. To escape the wrath of Esau because of how he obtained the blessing, right? So he is moving from one place to another because he's wanting to escape a situation. All right, that's one reason you would travel. And there's clearly that here with Jacob. He is fleeing for his life, or at least what he's perceiving to be for his life. And then he's also traveling to fulfill his parents' requests to find a wife among his mother's family. Both of these reasons are crucial to understanding what was on Jacob's mind as he lay down to sleep that night that he had the dream. Okay? So I want us to try to think contextually what's going on with Jacob, but in such a way that hopefully archetypal, we can fit in. Now, tradition, Jewish tradition teaches that Jacob actually, uh, between this period, before he got to Laban and labored seven years and seven years and so forth, he actually went to a town called Sfat in the northern part of Israel, and he studied there for 14 years in the academy of Shem and Aver, uh, meaning Noah's son Shem had went there and started uh, a place to learn, and his grandson Aver, as mentioned in Genesis, continued that tradition, and that Jacob went up there and he kind of studied and got his mind set. And if you go to Sfat even today, there is this big cave that is the supposed location of Shem and Aver's teaching place and where Jacob spent 14 years preparing uh, his heart and his mind. Um, so even though there's that tradition, his leaving Beersheba and his dream uh, still have the conscious and subconscious trauma of having to flee his brother right so there's there's that going on that Jacob's carrying with him as he's leaving he's carrying with him both conscious and unconscious subconscious trauma right it's been a major kind of thing go down in the family and it didn't get settled and there's probably a good chance many of us know what trauma in family is like, right? We know what it is to have someone have hurt feelings, someone feel betrayed, someone uh, disavow another family member, and you have that breach, right? And there are many things that show that very obviously, but also we carry it deep within us. And so Jacob's kind of carrying that with him as he is leaving Beersheba, and as he's going towards Haran, all right, it took a toll on him, and he was always kind of percolating just under the surface. Along with many conflicted feelings, Jacob was also going to Haran with the purpose of finding 
marrying and starting a family. Beyond the expected excitement of this prospect, Jacob's deeper intent in marrying and starting a family was to continue the heritage that had been entrusted to him by his parents and also by his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, uh, that he would build this family to be the cornerstone of the covenant and that he would be carrying the covenant uh, from the generation of Isaac into his generation and that he would be the one that made sure that covenant makes it to the next generation and that promised seed, the singular seed, the seed of Messiah, that that seed would continue to go forth. Right? So he sees himself very much on a mission, a family mission. But he's also incredibly conflicted because of his family situation. So to do this, Jacob has to leave the protected environment of his lifelong commitment to spiritual matters, right? How did the Torah last week describe Jacob? He was a man of the tent, right? And we, of course, expounded on that and talked about Jacob living in the tents or Jacob being in the tents. Didn't mean he was a mama's boy. Didn't mean he liked sewing and cooking and cleaning, right? It meant he was dedicated to spiritual things. He was dedicated to studying. He was dedicated to elevating himself beyond this world, right? And that's the contrast to Esau, his brother, who was obsessed with this world and had disdain, which is why he wanted to get rid of his birthright. The birthright had nothing to do with anything physical. The birthright was spiritual. Esau didn't want anything to do with that. And so he disdained it. And so you have that contrast of the spiritual, lofty-minded Jacob and the very earthly-minded, egocentric, fleshly-desiring, passionate Esau. And so now Jacob has to leave this environment. Does this sound familiar? Allah, Genesis 12, a few portions back. Lech lecha, right? Leaving your environment. He has to leave what he's always known. He has to leave what is comfortable to him, and he has to immerse himself in the more mundane things of the world, like finding a girlfriend and getting married and having kids and raising kids and a family. Now, hopefully, if you were here last week or listened last week, you now are beginning to see something I clued you into that said, once you know this, you're going to see it over and over again. Oh, lo and behold, it's the very next chapter. Remember, um, what is it? What did, let me find it up here if I put it up there. Well, maybe I didn't put it up there. All right. Um, enter inclusion. Remember that? Where Abraham, in order to grow spiritually, in order to be well advanced in age, that phrase we kind of unpacked that meant more than he just gotten old, right? If he was going to continue to grow in his spiritual maturity, he had to move outside of what was natural to him. He had to move outside of chesed. And he had to take in some gavora. And Isaac, the same way. Isaac had to move outside of that gavora and move into chesed. And at the binding of Isaac, these two things swap, this interinclusion for both of them, and as a result, they're able to move higher. Well, if Jacob is going to grow in his relationship with God, if Jacob is going to mature, if Jacob is going to advance spiritually, 
he has to do the same thing, which means he can't always live in the clouds. He can't always postulate theological conundrums. This is why later on in what's known as halakha, which is where the rabbis derived how to live out, literally how to walk out the Bible, they always said that no matter how great a teacher you were, no matter how great a scholar you were, that you were still supposed to have a mundane day job. So that you would have this, again, this inter-inclusion, that you would be forced to stretch outside of your zone so that you could grow as a human being, so that you could grow as a person. And so this is Jacob's Lake Laka, right? He's leaving his homeland. He's leaving his family. He's leaving his tents. He's leaving everything that's comfortable for him. And he's embracing something that he doesn't know and that he doesn't quite understand yet. And so as Jacob lay down that night, his life was in a powerful brew of mixed emotions. There was fear. There was frustration. There was guilt. There was resentment relating to his brother and his past. But there was also hope. And there was anticipation. And there was challenge as he faced the future. All of that's going on as Jacob decides to call it a night. So following that opening verse, there's only one more verse before the actual dream itself. Um, and that's, uh, uh, there, there I have, I did have the inclusion. I must have missed it. Genesis 28, 11. Let's read that together. And he came upon the place and slept there, for the sun had set. He took from the stones of the place and placed them around his head, and he laid down in that place. Oh, there's like so much in that verse. So much going on in that verse. Hopefully, hopefully you notice the repetition of the place, Hamakom, which becomes a name for God, actually, and a name for the temple. It's a very holy, holy name, Hamakom. It's mentioned right there, and that's why it becomes a holy name. So on this place, I have the sun had set, and kind of drawn out because I want to talk about that idiom. That's an idiom. What's it an idiom of? What's it really saying there? It's more than just the sun had set and it's nighttime and it's time to go to bed. That's not how Hebrew would say that. So it's using an idiom. What's its idiom? Notice then he took stones, plural. You see that? Plural. And placed them, plural, around his head. Right? Just want you to notice that because when he wakes up, he's only got one stone under his head. Right? Those are the kind of details you got to catch in the Torah because they all mean stuff. Right? So much going on here. Because the sun had set, though, I want to focus on that. This is interpreted in the Midrash to mean that the sun had set before its time, that God had arranged that he, Jacob would sleep there as this was the place he was destined to have the dream. In other words, he couldn't have this dream anywhere else. If he would have fallen asleep 10 miles north or 5 miles east or a couple of miles west or a few miles south, this dream isn't going to happen. Why? Because the portal, 
<laughs> the real ladder connects right there at Hamagom, the place. Because that place is also the place where God made Adam and Eve. That place, that place is the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That place, that place is where Abraham offered Isaac. That place, that place goes on to be where Jesus is put up on a cross. That place later gets called Golgotha. That place is not just any place. And so the sun had set is a Hebrew idiom saying that it's been orchestrated, right? And it's almost like we sort of have it in English like, uh, you know, like, you know, the light's getting dim, right? Something like that. If we think something is is had its course or something, someone's kind of uh, losing their kind of mental faculties or it might be like, the light's not quite as bright as it used to be, right? Or uh, the elevator's not going to all floors anymore and things like that, right? Where we clearly know, where we clearly know there's no elevator going up and down your spinal cord and we clearly know there's not a light bulb inside your brain and all of that. Those are obvious idioms to us. Like we're never going to interpret those literally. That's one of those, it's that obvious in Hebrew, but it's not that obvious when it gets into English because idioms don't always translate to cultures. That's why in your Hebraic toolbox, in your hand, in your handbook, it has a, one of the, really actually more than one of them because it's so important. Don't take idioms literally and make sure you know the idioms of the Bible. Okay? So here, this is all orchestrated so that Jacob, when he reaches this place, decides he's going to camp. Like, he thinks he's making the decision to set up camp here. God has made the decision for him to set up camp there. Another explanation of the sun setting relates to the matter of trials and tests in a person's life. It's an idiom related to that as well. When God tests an individual, their previous spiritual level and their clarified intellect are temporarily hidden. Right? And this can also sometimes help you cope with... Or, if not even yourself, if you can't be that self-aware, it can help you be compassionate to someone else who is going through a spiritual trial or test. Because have you ever had a friend or a loved one that pretty much the whole time you've known them, they're just, they got it all together. They're rational. They think things out. They pray about things. They're godly. They make great decisions. And then they're like in this period of life, and you're like, I don't know who they are, man. Like, I, they're making really bad choices, and they're just doing really, really stupid stuff, right? It means, it means they're in a place like where Jacob's at. And part of that is all of everything that they've known before, it's cluttered. The sun is set on that. Right? The light ain't so bright right there anymore, at least temporarily, so that they can then, as they work through that, they will elevate part of your Hebraic toolbox too. Descent for the sake of ascent. Anytime you're going to ascend in spiritual maturity, anytime you're going to elevate your growth in your relationship with God, you will go down before you go up. That's just the way it works. That's the way of life. And we've talked about that run and return, inhale and exhale, right? All those natural phenomenon that we see all the time that illustrate this, the same is true as above, so below. The same is true in your spiritual life. 
And so here, Jacob, he's out of sorts. He's not in his tent. He can't, he, he, it's, it's like a person with like, you imagine a person with OCD and all of a sudden you've gone to their desk and just wipe that thing out, right? And you just put all kinds of trash all over it, right? And move their stuff all around, right? They're flustered. They're flustered. That's Jacob's position. These things are hidden from him now. They're challenged now to arise to the occasion and therefore attain an even higher level of spiritual consciousness and maturity. Then Tivot Shalom, a wonderful ancient commentary on the Torah, explains that if this temporary diminishment would not occur, then it wouldn't be some kind of test, and it really wouldn't be any kind of exercise, and we really would never have any benefit from it. This prerequisite for a test is alluded to in the sun setting before its time, forcing Jacob to begin to dig deeper inside for faith and the fortitude that he would need in this new stage of his life. He's about to enter a stage in life that he is not prepared for, and this is part of what's getting him ready for it. The setting of the sun, again, is this metaphor for a diminishment of consciousness, but it also relates to dreams. When we sleep or slip into daydreams, our normative intellect fades into the background and our subconscious powers, our soul, becomes more prominent. Although the intellect is still active in a dream state, the subconscious is more active in taking the driver's seat. Just as in when you are fully awake, your subconscious isn't out. It's just not in the driver's seat. The dream state it can be compared to the setting of the sun, a depletion of one's intelligence and consciousness in this world. Right? It's entering into a different realm of your mind. The last action Jacob takes before sleeping is he arranges stones, plural, around his head. Rashi comments that this was to protect him from wild animals. Um, but wild animals are never just wild animals in the Bible. Jacob was aware that he was leaving not only family and mentors, but he was leaving the Holy Land for the very first time. So he took the stones of the place, Hamakom, of the land of Israel, placed them around his head as a symbolic act of protection. Even as he left the holiness of the land for an unknown destination and possible dangers as he was heading toward Quran, the holiness of the land was going to go with him. In fact, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, after he had spent time in Israel, would always answer the question when someone would say, hey, where are you going? Where are you headed to? He'd say, no matter where I'm going, I'm always on my way to Israel. And this way, we can see that those who are connected to Israel, not just the physical place, but the spiritual refuge that it represents, can call upon it for protection wherever one finds oneself. But then Rashi makes the commentary that the stones of the place that are pointed out in this verse, that Jacob took the stones, in the plural, while it later says, verse 16, Jacob arose in the morning after the dream and he took the stone he had placed around his head. What is that about? The stones contend for one another, it is said in the Midrash, to have the merit of Jacob lying upon them, but God instead fused them together to form one. 
The tradition is Jacob placed 12 stones around his head that night, which was symbolizing the destiny he was to have to give birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 stones then fused together into one stone to signify the unity of not only of God, but the unity of God and his people, their mission in this world to reveal the oneness of God. And by the way, this isn't the only time that multiple stones become one stone. Another place that that happens is with King David. Read the famous story of King David before he was king and good old Goliath. David took stones, plural, and then they became one when he shot it. Pay attention to the text. Those multiple stones become one. There's a whole other powerful lesson with that. I just want you to be aware. Multiple stones becoming one stone happens more than once in your Bible. So it happens here to signify the unity of God, the unity of God with his people, and the unity and the oneness of the mission of those people to manifest this one God to the world. A more inner psychological explanation is that the wild animals he feared were actually his own thoughts and his own emotions as he lay down to sleep, as he was alone and isolated from his family and his teachers. In fact, that it says he lay down in that place, Ha-Makom, connotes that he lay down there, but not in other places. The sages teach that Jacob never slept a whole night during the 14 years uh, that he was in this time period of his life. He would only sleep for short spells, just enough to renew himself. King David also never slept through the night. King David had a harp above his head that at midnight when the wind would blow through, and David alludes to this in the Psalms, that the wind would blow through his harp and it would play a certain melody. And that would get David to rise up at midnight where he would then pray and study and sing praises to God. This tradition of rising at midnight and not sleeping the entire night Uh, is still a tradition within Judaism. Uh, It's called katzot, midnight, right? It's very common for Orthodox Jews to get up at midnight every night to make sure they don't sleep through the night because of Jacob and King David. The sleeping, not sleeping through the whole night uh, to occupy oneself with spiritual pursuits, again, has been practiced throughout the ages. But the first time Jacob sleeps deeply is here. And it records his dream. Dreams are critical to mental health. They release our subconscious fears, conflicts buried deep inside, create an avenue for dealing with issues that need to be addressed. Jacob laid down that night, chased by his past, driven towards an unknown future. Hmm. Maybe someone can relate to that. He was full of dichotomies. He was full of paradox. He had trust, but he had doubt. He had confidence, but he was uncertain. He had hope, but he was foreboding. He stood between the world he knew so well and the world he felt destined to conquer, between existential loneliness and then finding his soulmate. He had received the blessing of Abraham from his father Isaac, and the weight of that inheritance was crushing him. 
He stood in the shadow of his father and grandfather who were both spiritual giants as he now attempted to forge his own path. Ultimately, Jacob's conflicts are our conflicts. And his longings and his hopes, those are our hopes and challenges through our struggles. His soul paved the way for our soul. And Jacob's dream is, in essence, it's our dream. It's our reality, and it's our destiny. And now from John 1, we even know more about that ladder that connects us to the world above. All right. This next section, I really like, which probably means you won't like it, right? That's, that's how it works usually. Usually... Something I'm like, man, that was a bust. I'm like, I get emails, that was amazing. And I'm like, oh. And then things I'm like, this is so mind-blowing. People are like, yeah, you know, you can't, hit a, you can't, you can't get on base every time, Pastor, you know. Um, this is good. This is going to be good stuff for you. And more than anything, it's going to be teaching you a methodology. It's going to be teaching you a very important methodology about how to take the Bible and then meditate on it, to meditate on it, to, to literally pray the text. Pray the text. It's a very, very powerful tool. And so as I go through this, you can do this with almost every section of Scripture. All right? So that's why when we read through that verse not too long ago, I kept emphasizing like the place, right? And so forth. Because any kind of section of Scripture does this. It finds a word or it finds a phrase that it really latches onto. Right? Why it does that? Why the Holy Spirit has embedded that into the text is because it's to hook you. So when you notice that repetition, stop. Stop what you're doing. And really focus in on that repetition to find out what's the Holy Spirit up to. All right? So I want to give you in this, this dream of Jacob or this, this section of Vayetzi, um, what I think will be very practical for you this week, especially if you journal or you kind of meditate or pray or maybe you have a, a person you discuss spiritual things with, uh, it's really going to give you that place. But it's also going to give you a lot to, to focus in on this week. You're going to have a lot of instances at your job this, I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and promise you this. This week at your job or in your family or in situations, you're going to be able to pause and reflect and draw what you're about to learn so that in those moments, you'll be transformed. Okay? This is, this is really good stuff, I promise. Even if you have to listen to it multiple times, it's good stuff. 
right? It's what's known as Shefa, S-H-E-F-A, Shefa. Shefa is the drawing down of the glory of God. This is how you draw glory down. This is Shefa. This is the process known as Shefa. So, let's look at this. So, Jacob's journey, it's blessed at its outset, right? He's going to head out. As soon as he heads out, it's blessed with this dream, this moment of awakening. In the dream, God shows Jacob the stairway that connects the realms of heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical, above and below. And then he gives Jacob a promise. Through this blessing, we ourselves become aware that that stairway, that that connection, with our feet planted on the foundation of the earth, has our crowns, our head, pointed to the expanse of heaven. Through us, God is going to pour down into our realm. So when you read this portion now after our time together this evening, when you read it this week, as I always encourage you to do, because now you have something to focus on, something to think about. When you read that, you need to like close your eyes, see yourself wherever you want to see yourself, planted firmly on earth, but yet, whether it's like glowing out of your chest, whether it's light beaming out of your head, but you have this connection above coming to you. And it's flowing. It's an energy flow. Right? This is you activating the Jacob that's in your soul. And then that Shefa can flow. When we become available to this flow, the Shefa, we are awakened to the most awesome and transform, transformative truths. And here's the truth from this week's portion. This is a good one. Even if you haven't taken a single note, you write this one down. Here is the truth. God was right here all along. And I never knew it. That's the truth. That's the truth for us. God was right here all along. I didn't have a clue. So, Genesis 28, verse 17. Let's read it together. How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. It's Jacob's response to what he has experienced. His response. What do you see repeated there? This. So, here's your word for prayer this week. You can do it in English. This. Or you can do it in Hebrew. Zay. Either way. Zay. This. It can become a one-word prayer for you throughout this week. Because what ze means, what this means for us, is to become fully present in this moment, here and now. And now, 
And now, and now, that's Zay. To always be fully present. How different would your relationships be if you were fully present in this relationship? At this time? In this place? At this exact second? With this person? You see it? That's what Jacob's realizing. This! This! I've got to be invested in this moment. Not the moments that came before. Not the moments that may or may not come afterwards. But this moment. Zay. In the story of Vayetze, Jacob tries to negotiate with God. And perhaps it's because he misunderstood the promise that was given to him in this dream at first. Perhaps he had forgotten the moment of awakening and became frightened. He wants assurance that the right food, the right clothing, the right peace will be available to him on his journey. Just like all of us. We just want to make sure we've got the right job, the right pay, the right benefits, the right home, the right school, the right church, the right community. Provide these things for me, God. We would all like to have our blessings offered to us in ways that seem comfortable and familiar. Yet we learn from Jacob that caught in our fears and desires when we're caught up in those things, we miss the true promise because we fail to be present to receive it. God was right here. And I never knew it. The promise. What does God say to Jacob when Jacob kind of wants to deal? Wants to make sure he's going to be comfortable. Make sure everything goes according to plan. All God says is, I will give you Hamakom. I will give you the place. The land of your life. I will give you the place. The place. Remember how that was repeated? I will give you the place to possess, to know, to inhabit, to cultivate, to refine. The awesomeness of that place that God will give you is none other than, as Jacob says, the house of God, the dwelling place of God. To live there at the heart of every molecule, you will shine through the windows of your eyes when you are open to this truth. That this awesome place, this place, is none other than the gate of heaven. Connecting all realms and dimensions, heavens and hells, connecting you with your wildest dreams. Which means, no matter where you find yourself this week, this is none other than the gate of heaven. This is is none other than the place that is the house of God. Be present in the moment. Because surely God is there. But we rarely recognize Him there. The promise of God to Jacob in this portion is the same promise He gives to you in this portion. 
This is what God says to you. I will give you descendants. You will be a delicate flower held up to the wind. You will be blown open so that your seed will scatter and take root. You will blossom in places you cannot even imagine. The winds of history and circumstance and coincidence will all spread your essence. Your song, your sigh, mixed with the pollen of desire, will all go to the the far corners of the world. Your fragrance will waft through the farthest garden. Through you and your descendants, all families of the earth are going to be blessed because I am with you. God says, I don't promise it'll be comfortable. I don't promise you won't suffer. I don't promise you'll never be hungry. I don't promise you'll never feel despair. I don't promise that your sun will never set. I don't promise your heart will never be broken. My promise is simply this. Anoki imach. Right from the text. I am with you. I am with you. Anoki imak. I am with you. Even when you feel abandoned. Even in your suffering, your hunger, your despair, your wondering, your stumbling, your confusion. Anoki imak. The spiritual challenge of Vayetzi calls you to fully engage in your journey. Every single one of you is on a journey. That's why you were sent here. You're on a journey. But remember what we've already talked about in Lech Lecha. Don't worry about the destination. That's whatever. It's your departure, and it's this place. It's where you're at. Your departure and where you're at. That's all that matters about the journey. And Vayetzi, the spiritual challenge of Vayetzi, calls you to fully engage in your journey to be taken up by the adventure of living, to open your heart to guidance along each step of the way, and to surrender to momentum and the flow of how you think your story should go. At the same time, you must realize that you have already arrived. Each step, each moment is an arrival because God is in this place and this moment. And that's always true. All that's required of you is to be present in it. The challenge of journeying requires that you become a student of life, that you receive each new circumstance in your life, each new landscape, each new dilemma, as an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to mature in your relationship with your God. Your courage will allow you to overcome the paralysis that can accompany fear, so that you can take the next step. Your curiosity, let it lead you onward and infuse your journey with joy. And compassion, let it open your heart, let it connect you with others, and let it heal the wounds that life inflicts. This adventure of life is a journey towards God and God-realization. Your commitment to the exploration and travel on the roads that unfold before you is absolutely crucial to this realization that God was here the whole time and I never knew it. 
God, the ultimate reality, is in this. Period. God is in this. Period. Not this fill in the blank. He's in, he's in Zay. He's in this. At this place. This moment. The challenge is to stand still with enough calm and spaciousness to be present to the presence. You live in a paradox. And that's what Jacob is teaching us. You live in a paradox of journey and arrival. You're always journeying, but you're also always arriving. This place, I am with you. This place, I am with you. Ze hamakom anoki imak. Spend time this week, and again, in English, just randomly through the week, say this and contemplate what this is. What is this place? What is this moment? What is this? Who is this person? Contemplate place. Where am I? Right? God had arranged Jacob to be in that place at that moment to fall asleep so he could have that dream. Why am I in this place? And no matter what, Anoki Imak. I am with you. Powerful, powerful words in this portion when you see those repeated words. This, period. Place, period. I am with you, period. Take that with you this week. Let's close with a blessing. Baruch Adonai Notain Atarah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift of the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Next week, worship center, right? Next week, worship center. Next week, worship center.